Hello, and welcome to this segment of Two Worlds, One Country, the show on WEHC and WISEY's FM, and on podcasts, the show that investigates the underlying causes of the rural-urban divide and talks to folks who understand that and are doing something about it. And today's guest is Dan Shea. Dan is somebody that I've just gotten to know, and I'm really thrilled that I've been getting to know over the last few months. Um, Dan is a professor of government and politics, writes both books and articles, a lot of them, about questions of uh, government and participation in the political process. And uh, from his perch at Colby College in Maine, where he lives. And Dan's going to tell us a little bit more about himself. But we're going to be talking primarily about what he discovered in an extensive new book that's coming out this fall, I believe, called The Rural Voter, The Politics of Place and the Disuniting of America. So we're going to dive into some of the findings um, that Dan will be sharing with the world um, when the book comes out this fall. So welcome to Two Worlds, One Country, Dan. Thank you, Anthony. It's it's great to be here. I'm a huge fan of Ruby. I'm just recently connected, as you know. You guys are doing great work, guys and gals. And I appreciate being part of this chat today. Yeah, terrific. Thanks. So let me go ahead and get the wheels turning by having you talk a little bit about yourself, where you were raised, how you were raised, and then kind of what led you to um, your current role as a professor at Colby. Yeah, well, it's a bit different, I think, maybe for academics. Um, I grew up in a small town in upstate New York. I grew up in Oneonta. My dad was a professor at SUNY Oneonta. He taught American politics. Oh, wow. So there's sort of one side of my life in this little dinky town, uh, this college town. But then my mother grew up in the Catskill Mountains, um, and she's very rural. And my five brothers and I, we have there's there's also my little sister Mary Kate. So there's seven of us in the family. Wow. Um, but mostly my brothers and I really gravitated towards that Roscoe Catskill side of of the extended family so we spent a lot of time out in the countryside i've been hunting and fishing my entire life I'm passionate about both in fact you pulled me in from from the trout stream yesterday i was in northern maine doing some fly fishing <laughs> sorry about um, that. <laughs> that yeah that's no that's completely fine my wife's glad to have me back too by the way <laughs> but um so I've been doing both. So I'm a, and, and, you know, on the one hand, my my mom and dad were, uh, you know, 60s sort of activists, anti-war activists, civil rights activists. And we were part of that, you know, but at the same time, you know, I've been hunting my whole life. So that's a bit different. So that's, uh, there aren't too many academics, as you know, that are steeped in sort of outdoor pursuits. Um, I think that's help, been helpful for this project. Um, so that's sort of my background, uh, upstate New York. And then as an academic, I do think I also bring a, a, a different mix as well. So prior to being an academic, I was a consultant, a campaign consultant. I got a master's degree in campaign management. Hmm. And I started running campaigns in New England and New York uh, after that. I loved doing that. I thought I was pretty good at it, but it's a tough lifestyle. Man, it you is. Know? Uh, it is. Yeah, so out on the campaign trail for seven days a week, from certainly from the middle of summer on, uh, long days. So I thought, what would be a nice route 
to do some of that sort of work with a better lifestyle, maybe to be able to do a little more hunting and fishing. <laughs> so I wound up going back to graduate school, uh, got my degree in American politics and started teaching electoral politics, campaign management. So, so my, so I bring this sort of practitioner side to the profession, which so, is also a little bit different. Yeah. And, and the so needed, piece. so very needed in, in the academic yeah, setting. Yeah. 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 Wow. So, so that tell me a little bit about the time frame for the campaign piece of your life, and also what kind of campaigns were you running? Were they were they state level? Mostly, level? yeah. It was uh, it was in the '90s and late '90s, and it was uh, state legislative races. State legislative. So I started working for the Speaker of the New York State Assembly, hmm. um, and it's interesting because he was from that. Speakers are almost always from. New York, of course, New York City in New York, um, and he was from Brooklyn, and he hired a fella to run campaigns across the state. His name was Tony Genovese from Brooklyn, and very much an old school sort of boss, <laughs> and he didn't know his butt from his elbow about running campaigns upstate, so I'd like to think I was a big help with that. Yeah. Uh, so my job was to run uh, races in, in upstate and to try to try to push Tony and others to think about non-urban electioneering. You know, right. imagine, you know, for example, that you could use radio advertisements in state legislative race. You, you don't do that in New York City because yeah. radio stations just spread way beyond, you know, right, right. or television and so forth. Um, so, so that's what I did uh, for about four years, which was awesome. Um, Thought about diving in a little deeper, but again, the lifestyle was tough. So my first teaching job at the University of Akron was actually to teach campaign management. And one of my books, I think it's in now it's in its fifth edition. Wow. I think it's the I dare say there's one of the most widely used campaign management texts. It's called Campaign Craft. Hmm. So the idea was to merge again what scholars know about campaigning with what practitioners now. So I, I, I'd like to think I've helped bridge that gap. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to check that one out. That's good. That sounds like a resource that, that campaigns ought to be using now. That's great. Campaign craft. So I, you know, I just immediately, as a flock of Ento, have an image of Genovese and, and thinking what a challenge that must have been for you with this old school Italian-American boss who probably was like, forget about the rural, forget about it. I mean, oh, did you yeah. did you succeed at all in moving him or or if not him, yeah, the I, boss? I think so. And actually, I got in a little bit of trouble with them, with that unit. After I left and went to grad school, my dissertation book is called Transforming Democracy. So it's my first book was Transforming Democracy. It's about how local party committees are often overwhelmed by these state capital or nationalized units. It would be the you know how the the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee would descend into a a community and just throw local norms out the window, throw local operatives out the door, and say, "Well, you've done it this way forever, but we're going to do it differently." So I helped. Uh, push a little bit on that. And the first story of the book is how this Brooklyn-centered campaign went up to Plattsburgh, New York, and completely botched it. Yeah. And completely yeah. botched a race that they should have won. That, that book is called Transforming Democracy? Correct. Yeah. So, Dan, I've got a couple of books 
of yours to read while I'm waiting for the rural vote. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you've got insomnia, Tony. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, that story of uh, the DNC or the state party zooming in, having not been there for most of the rest of the year prior to a campaign, a few months before a campaign, and kind of running the show uh, for good and for bad, that is still a very common occurrence. So I I absolutely do want to read that Transforming Democracy because that's part of our problem. Cool. So let's talk about the rural voter, the politics of place and the disuniting of America. Let's start with the methodology without getting real academic about it, just like what what did you do to gather the information that you based the book on? Well, um, it, maybe we could start with just sort of the impetus, and I'll dive right into sure, the methodology. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Because the impetus, I think, will be interesting. I mean, I think you'd be able to speak to this, and your listeners will surely understand this. It's as simple as it didn't used to be this way, right? It didn't. I mean, we, we, what we've seen as this wholesale coalescing of rural voters behind one party, behind the Republican Party. And that's unprecedented. One of the data sets that we collect shows that we've never seen this in American history, not over a sustained period and not across the nation. And I want to pause you just for a moment here to say that this is this is kind of news to some people. I mean, we tend to have short memories. We're overwhelmed with information, but also particularly among younger people, there's a younger liberals and progressives. There's a sense that uh, rural's hopeless and it's been that way forever. And, you know, leave them behind because they'll never change. And forgetting that places like the Ninth District of Virginia were very competitive for Democrats just a little more than a decade ago and many other places as well. So sorry to interrupt, but but that no. that's actually big. That's actually breaking news that this is a new phenomenon. So tell us more about that. Oh, a- absolutely. I, you know, I'm giving away my age a little bit, but mind you, I was a kid at the time, a young kid at the time. But I remember in 1972, my parents put us all six boys in a suburban. We went camping cross country, right? So my dad was an academic, so we had summers off. So we went cross camping and we wound up, as luck would have it, in Mitchell, South Dakota, on the day that their favorite son was coming home. So we was there and I shook George McGovern's hand in 1972 in Mitchell, South Dakota. So this is what I tell my students. Do you understand, I tell them, that likely one of the most liberal Democratic candidates for the presidency in, in history was from South Dakota? And they cannot understand that. And of course, later on, his seat was actually taken by Tom Daschle. Right. Right. So and there are many, many examples of true progressives coming from rural America. And you know as well as I do that, you know, the upper Midwest, for example, right. Minnesota and Wisconsin, Michigan. I mean, it, it's true. I mean, that some of the issues that are happening in Montana right now regarding their constitution spring from liberal moves made in the 1970s to that constitution. Mm-hmm. So you're right, Anthony, absolutely. Throughout America, many uh, progressive candidates came from rural parts. So I'm seeing this, right? And I'm I'm watching this and I'm from rural areas. And it's always been true that sort of in Otsego County, New York, the county would be more Republican and the city, little cities would be more Democratic. That's an old tune, right? So you'd wind up with the countryside Historically, I don't know, voting for Republicans at 55 or 60 percent or something like that. Then something started to change. Right. And we don't know. It wasn't 60 percent anymore or 65. It was 70. 
and 75 and 85 percent the numbers are overwhelming mm -hmm. something has happened in rural america and that's what nick and i nick jacobs my co-author and i have set our sights on so there are good books as you know that have started to to get at this issue uh kathy kramer's book the politics of resentment very important book absolutely yeah. um, kathy was actually my, my first guest on the show oh, yeah. she's fantastic yeah. love that book really really important set the bar but admittedly a one state um and she used a uh, a focus group method which is uh is is important and strong but 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 maybe not as broad and objective as what we did so back so so setting up that's why we did it anthony so what we did was we did two two parts um massive data sets we wanted to create a a project that was objective nonpartisan, and comprehensive we wanted to look at everything across the nation so the breadth of topics that we look at from economic issues to racial attitudes to culture to media that's one thing the other thing we did is we wanted to pull together as much data as we could so we did two things first off we i think created one of the largest electoral data sets around hmm. that is we had a team of our students go to every county in the united states and get election results back to 1824. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah, it's massive, massive data set. Now, as we say in a preface, don't don't fret too much. I mean, we they had lots of fun in Maine during those summers, you know, <laughs> two summers pulling that together. So it's, you know, hundreds of thousands of data sets, right? So it's really hard. Secretaries of state's offices, you know, all the way back. So when the state, when it became a state, right then, we got every little so then we merged that, Anthony, with census data. Uh, so we could tell uh, the the voting pattern in rural and non-rural communities over time. Mm -hmm. And that's how we can say that this is unprecedented. We've seen periods in American history when rural voters gravitated towards one party, particularly in regions, but it wasn't sustained and it wasn't national. We don't get that really. We, we, we argue that starts happening in the 1980s uh, and accelerates by 2012. Yeah. So that's the first piece, the big aggregate data set. And the other thing we did is we interviewed rural voters. We did three ways of surveys around the 2020 election uh, uh, before, right in the middle of it and after. Mm -hmm. We talked to 14,000 Americans, oh 10,000 of which are rural. Wow. So we, we've got the, I'm sure that is true, the largest uh, survey data set of rural voters ever done. That is extraordinary. So all of that to say that that breadth and depth means that the conclusions in this book, or let's say the findings and conclusions, should be very persuasive to anybody who's interested in this. This was not a fly-by-night project at all. So tell us a little bit about what some of the overarching findings were. Sure. You know, just one second on your point. I think what you'll find is that it'll, hopefully it'll be perceived as a balanced, comprehensive analysis that will upset some on the right and some on the left. Mm -hmm. um, there are findings in this book that will shake both sides mm -hmm. of traditional wisdom on both sides. Yeah. I, 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 all right, so I give you a couple. It, uh, it, one of the reviewers thus far has called it you know, a long-awaited corrective. 
Well, let's maybe we'll start with the general argument. What we find is that rural Americans have developed what we call a place-based identity. They define their being, their life, in large measure about where they live. It matters a lot to rural Americans. Now, it is true, it's fair to say that they're not the only Americans that do that. I mean, if you're a, a Southie from South Boston or something, you might define your identity based upon where you live. But overall, when we took a look at all this survey response, we see that rural Americans are much more likely to define who they are based upon where they live. Mm -hmm. And they like where they live. Mm -hmm. They want to stay where they live. It's interesting. They'll admit problems, and we can talk about some of those. They still don't want to go. Yeah, they still, they, They're much more likely to want to stay where they are than our suburban or urban Americans. And so when suburban, urban pundits and liberals suggest, look, you just need to move to where the jobs are, uh, <laughs> that kind of an ethic that's more detached from place and more mobile, that, that does not go over well in rural. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. What's interesting about that, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but on the one hand, rural Americans might admit that their children will have to move away they are worried about their economic futures, mm -hmm. but they don't want to leave. Yeah. Don't want their children to leave. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that crisis of wanting to stay, but imagining that children might have to leave, is very powerful. Yeah. Uh, you know, as a parent, I understand that. That's a, that's a very powerful part of this, and it, it it leads into the second place, second piece, and that is that this place-based identity has become. A sort of a cognitive filter for interpreting the world, what mm -hmm. happens in politics, what happens in society, what happens in Hollywood, right? And this is all merged together into what we describe as this shared fate phenomenon, hmm. where rural Americans see their own future as linked to, intimately tied to the future of their community, sort of as I go or as my community goes, so goes I. This shared fate, which is a literature, linked fate literature, uh, has been around in political science for a few decades and has generally been used in the study of Black Americans, of racial politics. We take pieces of that and for the first time link it to a sense of place. So people in rural America are much more likely to think about their fate as tied to the rest of their community's fate. Yeah, And all that is bound uh, Anthony, into uh, this tight package because of what we call real perceived and manipulated grievances. Wow. Right. Like things that, yeah. have happened in rural America. There's a perception of so real things have happened in real Amer rural America. Some perceived things have happened. And I think some manipulated sort of top down elite sort of pressures in rural America have bound this all together into a sort of a tribal us versus them. And the the them is uh, the elites, uh, is Hollywood, is urbanites, cosmopolitans, and of course, Democrats. Yeah, absolutely. And the, it's so important to understand that if you have real grievances, significant real grievances that have been unaddressed for decades, then the perception of other grievances or the openness to be manipulated to think that you're getting screwed when you're not getting screwed, all of those things become a whole lot more likely when the foundation of real grievance is there. And that's the 
one of the pieces the left just looks right past most of the time. Yep, yep, you're, at, you're absolutely right. One of the items that I can't shake because I because I drive around northern Maine all the time, we call them, and I think it's a term that's been used elsewhere, um, NAFTA ghost towns. Mm, mm. Gosh, we have a lot of NAFTA ghost towns, and, and including Waterville, which is where Colby College is. You know, these towns that used to... Um, thrive on a small manufacturing these right. rural areas that had the mills the paper mills and they had their textile mills and right on the edge of the river and and they're all boarded up they're yeah. all empty and you know there was a promise of wide prosperity and there was you know and it was both parties really what's interesting about that nafta was a function of reagan and newt Gingrich and bill clinton it was yeah. sort of and 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 those promises fell flat in rural America. Yeah, so is, yeah. as you say, Anthony, is a real issue uh, that is, can be easily combined with the more, more perceptual piece and also manipulated by elites. Right. Absolutely. This is really helpful, Dan, um, but our time is, is getting short. So I want to try to do two things in the remaining time. You gave a presentation to Ruby as part of our monthly briefing just a, just two three months ago. It was great, and I want to I want to focus on one of the things I recall from that presentation. To ask you to comment because I know it's a part of the book. And then if we have a, a minute, I, I want you to also uh, comment on what you think's one or two of the most important steps are that folks on the left, liberals, progressives, Democrats, might take to really begin to overcome the divide. But but that first piece. You talked about data that showed that it was actually a really small minority of rural people who were the most vehement and vitriolic, who were the ones that were posting the most kind of obnoxious things in their in their yards, who were showing up at school board or town council meetings, whatever, uh, just loaded for bear. And I, I don't remember the number, but it was shockingly small, and you called them rabble-rousers. So tell us quickly a little bit about, like, what what do you mean by rabble-rousers, and, and what are the numbers in terms of the the number of those folks that that uh, are part of rural America? Well, I'm glad you brought it up, Anthony, because it's a, I think it's a really important part of the book. So you ask urban or suburban voters, particularly progressive liberal voters, what they think about rural America— what they'll get, their image, will be from the big billboards, from the massive signs, from the from the stories in the paper about the school board meeting where somebody went off the rails and so forth. Mm -hmm. So they're all crazy out there, right? right? That's that's what you get. So to be honest, when we dove into that data and we started looking at that, was you know, Nick and I live in rural America. We didn't quite expect that. But what we found is something very different. What we found, if we simply divided the respondents based upon whether or not they posted something about politics that day within the last 24 hours or if they pay a lot of attention to the news we separate out that group and look at their behaviors and attitudes it's really really unbelievable really different so what we get so the numbers about 10 percent of uh, of rural americans we call deeply engaged right? And we call them rural rabble-rousers. They are very different than the other 90%. They are the ones that are linked, honestly, to these wild conspiracy theories. They are the ones that are the, sort of the farthest out there on policy questions. 
they're the ones that are twice as likely to to attend rallies and events and meetings. They're who we see. They're, we see their barns when we drive into the countryside, and they're the ones we see on the news protesting events. Now, I, I'm not taking, there's no value statement about what, what, that they should be doing this or not doing this. But what we're saying is that there's a subgroup of rural Americans that are deeply engaged. And what we say is they really define their identity based upon an intimate knowledge of issues right? A deep dive. They're much more likely to rely upon multiple sources of information. If you ask a rural rabble browser about solar power or something, you're going to get a long answer about mm. the problems with solar power. So they, they know it and they define their identity, we say, based upon telling the rest of us why we are wrong. And it can be about uh, any sort of policy question about about medicine or about COVID vaccines or about solar power or about they are a very distinct group that are overshadowing we say or creating a misperception in the media one of the things that we say is that reporters flock to them yes because they're yeah they're the most outrageous get get, get the big picture Right. We start. Well, there's one story, for example, of a reporter heading out to uh, rural Pennsylvania to find out where rural voters are on uh, the Trump election, the 2020 reelection. And they start the story at the Trump house where someone had painted their house red, white and blue and put all these huge posters for Donald Trump. So if you're a reporter, why not start right there? And why not why not have the picture of the Trump house as your lead piece because yeah. it's going to, you know, it's clickbait, right? Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. problem is that rural Americans, 90% of them are not like that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's the extraordinary thing because we all know about rabble rousers and you could say there's rabble rousers on the left as well. But I think there's going to be a bunch of folks on our side who are want to, going to want to dig into your data because they won't believe it. They won't believe yeah. that it's only 10 percent. When I talk to folks, it's sort of the opposite perception. When I'm doing a rural urban divide training, they're thinking that, yeah, there's probably a few reasonable people out there that haven't totally drunk the Kool-Aid. But they're probably thinking it's 90 percent crazies and 10 percent who aren't. And so this is a a shocking and revelatory finding here that I think will transform uh, the way we understand rural. Um, so I, I, I could have you talk more about that, but I am going to ask you at lightning speed to give us, let's say, one thing that you think a person listening who themselves might be not deeply versed in rural and is kind of concerned about the divide and what to do about it. What, what would you recommend? couple of things. First off, try to get beyond the portrayal of rural Americans, not only in the news media, but popular media, the entertainment media. Mm -hmm. We spend a mm -hmm. chapter talking about sort of cultural perceptions, cultural portrayal of rural Americans. It's a tough hit. If you're a rural American, it's, it's a pretty tough hit out there. And mm -hmm. we, you know, we start, for example, at deliverance and we move our way through some of the cultural portrayals, step beyond that because it's not true. And yeah. it's in some ways it's the last place where you can where you can do tropes and stereotypes and yeah. not get pushback, right, you know, right, you right. portray these people that way. The other thing I we we recommend in the end is for 
for Democrats to show up, I think that there's enough examples of Democratic candidates who succeed in rural America by being genuine and honest and understanding these issues and being part of their community in a, in a real way, not sort of a flyover sort of way. So um, they're not for, it's not a foregone conclusion. You can make inroads in rural America. And we end the book talking about the necessity of party competition. Again, we try to be nonpartisan. This isn't about Democrats winning. It's about party competition. Our democracy suffers in areas where there are super majorities. We need to do something to preserve our democracy. And that means Democrats stepping up in these places they think are foregone conclusions. Right. And the flip side of that, maybe not quite as extreme, was your early experience in campaigns where very, very 100 percent urban people in Brooklyn were sort of making decisions and policy about New York State where much of New York State is very rural and small town. So anytime you have one party domination, you've got uh, at best uh, underrepresented people, if not really potentially bad stuff. You've got it. You've got it, Anthony. That's exactly right. Dan, this has been terrific. I've been talking to Dan Shea, professor of government and electoral politics at Colby College and author of the upcoming book, The Rural Voter, The Politics of Place, and the disuniting of America due out this fall. Dan, thanks so much for being on Two Worlds, One Country. Thanks for having me, Anthony.